Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. The one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou dost take thought of him, and the son of man that thou dost care for him? Good Heavens is a podcast that takes a deeper look into the cosmos, revealing God's wondrous power and design. In his letter to the Romans, the Apostle Paul writes in the fourth verse of the tenth chapter that, quote, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes, end quote. Recently, our pastor has been preaching through the book of Romans, and it was a recent Sunday where he had been speaking about this very verse. He paused to explain what the Greek word for end is. It is the word telos, which simply means purpose or goal. It was what the pastor said next that really grabbed my attention, as you will see why. He said telos is the word from which we get telescope. And instantly I was struck again with a question we have pondered before here on Good Heavens. What is the ultimate telos or end goal of building and then looking with or through the lens of sophisticated ground-based and space-based telescopes? In other words, why are we doing this? What do astronomers hope to see? And how are they going to interpret what they see? Who gets to say if their interpretations are accurate? And what do they ultimately hope to achieve? What is the end goal of looking through a telescope today? NASA says of the mission of the newly launched James Webb Space Telescope that, quote, The James Webb Space Telescope is a giant leap forward in our quest to understand the universe and our origins. Webb is examining every phase of cosmic history, from the first luminous glows after the Big Bang, to the formulation of galaxies, stars, and planets, to the evolution of our own solar system, end quote. Note the reference to our origins. This goal is often mentioned in various missions to explore the universe. NASA wants to know where we came from, how life began. But it does not follow that looking at stellar spectra or analyzing the brightness or distance or mass of stars and galaxies is going to tell us anything about who we are as human beings, where we came from, or how we got here. It is akin to thinking that a few carbon samples taken from American elm, dogwood, and sycamore trees in Central Park in New York would tell arborists in Helena, Montana, from where the 3.9 million inhabitants of Los Angeles, California have come, who they are, or why they even live there. Carbon from distant trees in New York says absolutely nothing about the lives of people living in Los Angeles. In the same way, signatures of oxygen and hydrogen from distant galaxies or the carbon in distant stars say nothing about our existence here on Earth. It has yet to be explained in unambiguous empirical detail by any cosmologist or astrophysicist how their telescope observations actually give them the data that tell us who we are, why we're here, or where we came from. The telescope, then, is not finally the place to look for answers about our humanity. Assuming that the modern scientific lenses of cutting-edge high-tech space telescopes are capable of telling us more about ourselves is akin to using a metal detector to read a novel. If we really want to know why we are here, where we came from, and who we are, the one to ask is not a telescope, but the Word of God made flesh. 
the one who created everything and sustains everything by the word of his power, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is through Christ and for Christ that the universe and everything it contains was created. Jesus sustains it all. He knows how he did it, why he did it, and what it all means. He also knows our frames intimately. Human beings are not finally the random chance outcome of impersonal forces. We are all created in the image of God for his glory. But because of sin, we all suppress that truth in unrighteousness. But it is God who so loved the world and us that he gave us his only begotten Son, that whoever so should believe on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The one who created the cosmos has come to offer each one of us forgiveness of sin and guilt and eternal life in him and with him. Science will never get the full picture of what the universe is all about simply by looking through telescopes. Certainly we will continue to be able to see the wonders of the universe through these telescopic observations, celestial artwork that declares the glory of God. But a telos that leaves God out of the picture is not a lens through which one should stare too long. It can lead to spiritual blindness. Instead of anachronistically trying to squeeze modern scientific interpretations of the universe into the pages of Scripture, we ought to instead assess scientific interpretations of the universe in light of what God reveals to us through His Word. In a sense, telescopes reflect the worldview which dominates the sciences today, methodological naturalism. Methodological naturalism is the sense that science only tries to and only should explain the universe apart from any supernatural or miraculous ideas about God. But what is interesting and somewhat ironic is that the physical universe does not put this constraint on scientists, but scientists put this artificial constraint upon themselves. The physical cosmos nowhere tells a cosmologist or an astrophysicist to be a methodological naturalist in his day-to-day -day research. Neither does the universe tell a scientist that one should adopt metaphysical naturalism. That is the belief that there is nothing beyond the physical universe. Both of these assumptions cannot be proven scientifically. They are non-scientific impositions that come from the scientists themselves, not from the universe they study. The limitations of these naturalistic worldviews inhibit and distort scientists' explanations for the universe and our place within it. They leave out the fundamental foundational reason for the universe and what it is all about. As Colossians 1.16 and 17 say of Jesus, quote, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together." End quote. In conclusion, does anyone really know how old the universe is? The only one in our book who does is Jesus. Come and see. Well, good heavens, Wayne, you know there's more in heaven and earth, Spencer, than is dreamt of in our philosophies. <laughs> yes, and we, we don't even have Horatio here. No, we don't, uh, oh, but uh, cosmologists have seen a ghost. <laughs> yes. Several of them, apparently, that's spooking the cosmological, there's, there's... Uh, in the cosmological community. They don't know what to do about these apparitions in the deepest of recess of the universe. Mysterious things way out there in the cosmos. Way out there, and uh, God has shown them to us, and we are going to uh, talk about something that has added to an already growing crisis in cosmology. Yes.
Yes. So let's um, let's do uh, a little scripture, and then uh, I have a surprise, uh, another surprise quote from Hamlet that I thought I would use at, at some point. I don't know if I'll do it immediately, but um, I'll begin. I won't say why I'm going to begin here. The people will know this immediately, but it'll be kind of a surprise. So I'm going to read this. Okay, we like surprises. On yeah, good heavens. I'm gonna gonna read this, and then uh, you'll have to just listen to see why why I'm reading this, and then Wayne, you can read your verse. You have a couple of okay. verses as well. But uh, go into the book of Genesis if you ever buy your uh, Bibles with you. You can turn to Genesis chapter five, and uh, beginning in verse twenty one. This is a list of descendants of Adam. And this is about midway through, a little bit more than midway through the list. So it's kind of one of those begot lists that you kind of have to get through. But uh, beginning in verse 21, Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. Not the pine tree, but uh, the human being. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah. And he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Methuselah lived 187 years and became the father of Lamech. Wayne, can you imagine being a dad at 187? No, I can't. I can't. And then (laughs) um, verse 26, then Methuselah lived 782 years after he became the father of Lamech or Lamech and he had other sons and daughters so all the days of Methuselah were 969 years Wayne and then finally he died and he was a hardy soul he was a hardy soul and uh just uh I know a lot of skeptics and atheists will quote the ages of the first uh, generations of, of human beings and go the, the the age thing is just it's just impossible that's why genesis gets everything wrong because people don't live that long so uh we, we're, but but keep that in mind we're we're going to be talking tonight about uh the age of stuff and uh how incredible um i think uh, i came up with a title for this i'm not sure if i'm going to actually use it but i think it's a good title wayne it's not nice to ask the universe how old it is it's just not nice. It doesn't lead to good things. <laughs> oh, I remember one time uh, a family, husband and wife, um, this was a couple of years ago after we'd started Good Heavens. Uh, one of them was, I think one of them was a, a young earth. One of them was old earth. So I walk in and they're like, hey, Dan, we have a question for you. I was like, okay. How old is the universe? I'm like, oh. And they're both looking at me like, like I'm going to – like. Like whatever I say is going to land on one one of their sides or the other, and I said, "Well, mm-hmm. you know, it's uh, it's like that saying that uh, it's just it's just not nice to ask a woman how old she is." <laughs> <laughs> and I left it there. I didn't uh, I didn't settle their differences. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, we're going to be talking about age stuff. But Wayne, you have something. Related to that, coming from the wisdom of Koheleth, or the preacher, or Ecclesiastes. What have you got? Yes, What's Ecclesiastes. On this is from Ecclesiastes chapter 3 in the Old Testament, and it's such a fascinating book of the Bible written by Solomon. And uh, this is uh, verses 10 and 11 in Ecclesiastes 3. Uh, okay, it says, I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Ooh, that's good. No one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. And he makes things in their time, and then I love the reference to he put eternity in our hearts. So we have this concept of a finite period of time coupled with the idea of forever, something existing infinitely or forever and always. Well, to me, it's like uh, we are able to comprehend something of eternity and we're able to 
seek God, we're able to seek out and learn things intelligently, and yet we can't fathom everything God has done. Right, right, exactly. And um, and we don't pretend here at Good Heavens that uh, that uh, God has given us all the secrets uh, of the universe because he certainly hasn't. Um, <laughs> if he did, Wayne, you and I would be uh, – would be uh, filled with Nobel Prizes if God gave us all the secrets of the universe. We could solve a lot of mysteries. But uh, uh, Yeah, that's not us. But that's not us. We are not uh, – maybe if we worked hard enough, we could get a Nobel Prize in something. Maybe uh, maybe the Nobel Committee will have a Nobel Prize for podcasts. I don't know. <laughs> uh. <laughs> but I wanted to read something from Act 5, Scene 1 in Hamlet that I think is is additionally going to fit in with what we're talking about tonight. Okay. Wayne, you've probably seen the picture, and most of our listeners have at some point, of um, Hamlet holding the skull of his old jester friend, Yorick. You remember the scene? He's in the graveyard. I don't think I've seen that. Oh, okay. Well, then it's a classic scene. I'm not, I'm not too big on Shakespeare, I'm sorry to say. Oh, well, that's all right. This is It's not... It's not super common, but um, it is one of them. If you're into Shakespeare, you know the scene. Um, Hamlet is musing about in the graveyard, and um, he picks up a skull. And it turns out to be the skull of somebody who knew Hamlet when Hamlet was youthful. And his name was Yorick, and Yorick was a court jester. You know what a court jester is? One of those yes. uh, silly fools that uh, sort of the medieval version of a comedian or a clown to some degree. Yeah. And uh, so he ticks, he picks up the skull and he he starts to muse about uh, about Yorick. He says, "Alas, Paul Yorick, I knew him, Horatio. Here's Horatio for you, a fellow of infinite jest, most excellent fancy. He hath borne me on his back a thousand times, and now, how abhorred my imagination is! My gorge rises at it." Here hung those lips that I have kissed, I know not, I know not how oft. Where be your gibes now, your gambles, your songs, your flashes of merriment that were wont to set the table on a roar? Not one now to mock your own grinning, quite chop-fallen, are you? Now get you to my lady's chamber and tell her, let her paint an inch thick. To this favor she must come, make her laugh at that Prithee, Horatio, tell me, tell me one thing. What's that, my lord? Dost thou think Alexander looked o' oh, this fashion in the earth? Even so. So, what is he saying there? He's saying, poor Yorick, you can't joke and laugh at your own skull now, can you? Where are your funny songs? Where are your jokes, your flashes of merriment that made everybody laugh? And then he says at the end, he says, go tell my mother to paint on her makeup as much as she wants, but she can't hide her fate, that she will eventually come to this as well. Make her laugh at that, York. Okay, Dan, you left me wondering where, where, is, uh, where does Shakespeare fit in here? We got Horatio at least. We did. We got Horatio. I thought you wanted that. So um, <laughs> we will see. Shakespeare is uh, actually going to be proven to be a, a good cosmologist for us as we uh, as we unpack tonight's episode. Okay. So um, let's uh, let's jump into the uh, to the sciencey part of this. And uh, what what exactly are we talking about tonight, Wayne? What, what's going on? What's this crisis? Well, there's, there's been a buzz among, on YouTube and among scientists over something that came out from a scientist by the last name of Gupta recently, and he proposed a new idea to explain the James Webb Space Telescope results. You know, we, we've talked about James Webb on uh, three or four podcasts, but uh, the uh, there's these galaxies out at such a distance that uh, they w- it seems like they wouldn't have time to form after the Big Bang. And then there's also ga- uh, black holes out there that they have a similar problem for. And so they're trying to explain how these uh, big, uh, normal-looking galaxies could have formed so sh- in so short a time after the Big Bang. So 
the the going uh, accepted age for the universe uh, among scientists and astronomers is usually they'll say thirteen point eight billion years, and uh, so this man named Gupta came up with a proposal that looks at some of the science a different way, reinterprets some things. And it basically makes the universe 26.7 billion years old instead of um, 13, 14. So he's, he's kind of doubling the age of the universe. In his the approach. universe just got uh, a bunch of wrinkles, got a little older. Yes. Now, some sometimes what you see in YouTube or in an article is kind of a misleading thing. So, like, I saw one YouTube video that was saying – that this was a new discovery that the universe was 26.7 billion years old, but that's that's the wrong way to describe this. This is not a new discovery; it's a new theory. Uh, a new discovery is not the same as a new theory. And so, this is based on what I'm, what I believe to be. There were um, several massive. And I don't mean like huge, but more like dense with mass, very bright universe and a very a very bright uh, galaxies, mature, fully formed, dense, bright, hot, uh, that just shouldn't be there, for lack of a better word, because there's just not enough time in the Big Bang evolutionary scale for these galaxies to have fully formed stars, fully right. formed shape, fully formed mass. Um, we're talking... Impossible, and I think uh, early on, I think earlier this summer, some people were calling these galaxies uh, universe breakers, like they're just uh, yes. undoing the Big Bang paradigm. And um, others are suggesting uh, this is only heightening an already problematic uh, crisis that has existed in cosmology for a while, which we'll talk about a little bit. But just to establish something this is like finding a t-rex or say a human being with a t-rex in a, in a fossil place somewhere or maybe the t-rex before the the cambrian layer of all those trilobites finding a t-rex below all the trilobites or something this is these are cosmic fossils that are not where they should be or not where they were expected to be yeah it's a little bit like the problem uh geologists and biologists have with the Cambrian explosion, as they call it. The, the Cambrian explosion has so many different types of uh, living organisms all fossilized at the same time in the rock record. And um, so to a biologist, the, the question is, how could they all come about at that time? And it seems like they came about all at once. When you're looking through the rock record from the bottom up, it looks like they all came about at once. So that's kind of like these really distant galaxies and other objects yeah. out the way out there. Right. Um, yeah. So it's like uh, in the Cambrian, what you have are all these trilobites and all these other wonderful science, uh, science fiction-looking critters. Uh, they're everywhere, but there's nothing below the, pre -cam the Cambrian. There's nothing in the pre pre-Cambrian strata that would suggest that these this explosion of life came from anything. It's just there on the rock record. It's the lowest level of the rock record with all this biological life with nothing before it. And so how did all that life just sort of finger snap come into being? There wasn't enough time in Darwin's scale for these things to have developed. Uh, yeah, that, and of course I yeah. would turn it around and look at it in the opposite way. I would say these are these are the burial of organisms in the worldwide flood. They're not. I would agree. Yes. Uh, that's yeah. that's what makes sense of it. To mm -hmm. me. Anyway, but that's that's geology. We're talking about astronomy. Right. Right. <laughs> but we are talking about fossils, cosmic fossils as yes. they appeared. Um, I don't know what the age, 500 million, 300 million years after the Big Bang, something uh, which just uh, decades ago was uh, the region of the universe allegedly where stars were just beginning to form. Yes. And um, I don't want to keep our listeners hanging too long, so I want to make a, a quick reference to why I read from Genesis and talked about Methuselah. Because uh, Methuselah is going to introduce the problem that we'll be talking about a little bit more in detail here in just a minute. 
Uh, Wayne, you've heard it, and we, we were chatting about this before we uh, recorded. Methuselah, allegedly, is the oldest star, the oldest known star in the universe. It is, I think it's within the constellation of uh, Scorpius, the Scorpio, the Scorpion, um, just outside of the claws, just a little north of Antares, uh, 190 light years away from us. And um, this star has a is a subgiant that is metal poor. That means it's predominantly made of hydrogen and helium. Doesn't have the heavier elements like iron and carbon and things like that. At least not in in great amounts. So the the theory is that that if you find a kind of a hydrogen helium star with with low metallicity, that it must have been a star from the earliest point of the universe when there was only hydrogen and helium available to to make stars, the the population three stars. Now, this isn't a population three star um, to that extent, but here's the enigma. I think they would say it's a population two star. It's right. Kind of the right. next would, generation after population three. Yes, yes. Um, but here's the, here's the conundrum, Wayne, uh, that is the gist of what we're talking about tonight. Methuselah is older than the universe. <laughs> yes. I mean, uh, I, I'm like, well, how did that happen? How? And the measurements, and this is the point I wish to make, cause the measurements over the last several years since they were have been measuring this, I think it's they've been measuring it for like 20 years now. It's been known uh, since 2000. And um, it's called HD 140283. Uh, that's the uh, technical name of it. And when it first was observed, people thought it was 16 billion years old. That's the kind of reading that they were getting. But uh, if the universe is 13.8, Wayne, this star must have been, well, <laughs> you see the problem. How do you have a 16-billion-year-old uh, yeah. star in a 13.8-billion-year-old universe? But over the last several decades, the last two decades, uh, measurements, subsequent measurements have been taken of this star – and it has varied in its age, depending on the study and the, the tools that are using that are being used to measure it. And it's actually a couple of times has dipped just below the age of the universe at 11 billion, 12 billion years old. I think of I think presently the star is still the best estimates now are saying the star is. 14.27 billion years, I think, and that was in 2014. Um, but in May of 2021, uh, another study was done, and uh, they said it was 12 billion years old. Um, so, Yeah, so these things, uh, I, Dan, I would not consider one example like this to be a big deal, uh, especially when, they, when the uncertainties are overlapping. So... Mm-hmm. You got to understand mm-hmm. uh, a little bit about what how uncertainties figure into this. So, if one person measures thirteen point eight and the uncertainty is say point five, that means that the age could be thirteen point uh, three to fourteen point three. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, if somebody else measures the age at 14, let's say, and it's 0.5 uncertainty, then the two overlap. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. if they overlap, then they're considered to agree, even yes. though the the main number is uh, not the same. And the the key thing I wanted to make a point of with Methuselah, and something we'll, I hopefully we'll talk about a little bit more, is that the way in which we measure, or we, I say science, measures distances to things. It's, we're not, we're not criticizing this. People are doing their best, trying to do their best and trying to figure out how far away, how old things are. But the measurement itself, if, if it's like having a, a tape measure that uh, every six months or so, the units of measurement change. Um, that the standard way in which we measure things is somewhat elastic and variable yes. in terms of and that's that's the thing to keep in mind is that when we're told a lot of times you hear in textbooks or scientists will tell you uh, you know videos youtube science whatever it's almost 
comes across sometimes as a settled fact about how old everything is. Um, and in truth, what James Webb has uncovered is a crisis that uh, – or has exacerbated an already existing crisis about how astronomers measure distances to distant objects. And so uh, there's even people right now – I know Dr. Hugh Ross of Reasons to Believe. We had him on the show a couple months uh, – about a month ago. And Dr. Ross believes that uh, these universe breaker James Webb Space Telescope uh, galaxies that are supposedly making the universe double in age, he thinks uh, – he went into detail. He thinks that these things will fit well within a 13.8 billion paradigm. Others are not so sure. Um, but uh, we'll talk about I, – I wanted to do – I have a bunch of information about the two ways in which cosmologists measure distance to things. And we could talk about that. The uh, rate of expansion of the universe and the Cepheid variable or Cepheid variable and supernovae in nearby galaxies. Those are two ways that uh, – that we measure things. Um, and, um, well, the cosmic microwave background radiation and then the uh, the Cepheid and supernova variable, those are two ways in which we measure distances. But they are dramatically different. Um, and the more that our, our tools have gotten more specific and more technologically, are technologically improving, that the distance, the difference between these two ways of measurements has increased. And so they thought, well, James Webb will solve this problem. It will um, have better resolution of Cepheid variables and supernovae in distant galaxies. And maybe Hubble's resolution was not good enough. Maybe James Webb will resolve it to where we'll see that these objects are actually, you know, there's a, there's a difference in the correlation between the brightness Hubble measures of these Cepheid stars and the brightness that uh, the James Webb measures. But as it turns out, there have been three galaxies since last November, two recently this summer and fall, They've all measured correlating Cepheid variables. They've taken Hubble Cepheids, Cepheids, and they've taken James Webb Cepheids, same stars, two different telescopes, and guess what? There's no significant difference in the brightness. So the James Webb, the James Webb didn't solve the problem. It seems to have <laughs> continued the mystery of the discrepancy between the two ways that uh, cosmologists measure distances. Yeah, and so the same kind of applies. Now, we started talking about the Methuselah star. So if something similar happens with galaxies and with black holes. Uh, galaxies, they believe, have to grow. They start small and they grow, <laughs> and it takes time. Black holes have a different kind of problem that ends up with the same issue you uh, with black holes you from from physics from what is known they don't know of any way to form a black hole except from the supernova of another star so how do you get a really really super massive black hole that's really gigantic or in a mass well you have multiple stars that have to f fall into this black hole it has to grow and you have to have probably multiple supernova explosions before you get the supermassive black hole. And so some of these galaxies that the James Webb Telescope has discovered and, and measured have black holes in them, Dan. And so you've you've heard of, we've talked about a little bit about another uh, space telescope called the Chandra X-ray Observatory. And Chandra measures X-rays. X-rays are used to detect black holes. So what they've done is they've teamed up and had the James Webb detect the galaxy using infrared. And then they have the Chandra look at the same thing with X-rays. And they identify the black hole inside the galaxy. So the, these real distant galaxies sometimes have black holes in them and uh there's there's an article that was talking about this because they have a problem with the black holes not having time to form just like not having galaxies with the time to form and there was uh some scientists that called them uh what did they call them um 
hidden hidden monsters, these little hidden monsters, these giant black holes in these distant galaxies. These are the uh, super trilobites of yeah, the pre- yes. Precambrian cosmos. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> super massive trilobites with horrible teeth and claws and everything. Like, how did they right. get here? What are they yeah. doing here? <laughs> yeah, what are, what are they? How is this happening? Right. It's like going to a, a, a nursery in a, a, the newborn ICU in a, in a hospital and seeing, uh, you know, five, six, seven, eight-pound newborns. And then over there in the corner, there's a 480-pound uh, newborn. <laughs> and you're like, how in the yeah. world did that happen? <laughs> how did it get that big? How did it start so big? How did he get so big? So they're, right, they're beginning right. to say about some of these black holes – Instead of black holes going through multiple generations of stars, the star forms that blows up, the star forms that blows up, instead of all that, which would take a long time, what if you had a massive gas cloud that just collapsed into a black hole? Could that happen? And, and uh, get, But the problem with that is that these clouds don't normally – we can't normally collapse into one massive object that big because they can't get compressed enough. They The cloud normally breaks up and you get multiple stars and then things can happen with multiple stars. So, so it, this is why it takes a long time to form a really, really massive black hole in their, in their model. Now that's funny because, uh, well, that's not funny. I'm not making fun of it, but, uh, we have uh, quoted multiple times now here our friend uh, from um, from the 1970s at uh, at Cornell, Martin Harwit. Yes, <laughs> we have cited him multiple times because of what he said in his textbook uh, from the 1970s. It would be real easy to explain stars as having just come out of nothing. <laughs> yeah, and he described this galaxy problem even then without the yes. James Webb and with, right. the technology wasn't nearly so good. It's basically the same problem taken farther. Same problem. Same problem on a bigger scale if we have a problem with star formation, compressed gas and all this stuff. Now we have a huge, much bigger problem with condensation of gravity and mass and energy uh, condensing into a black hole. And then we have all the stars that have to appear in a galaxy – and then we just have all this mass that has accreted in a very short uh, period of time. And this just uh, – this is just – and, well, Wayne, you said it. I mean, we're making the comparison to the Cambrian explosion. But I think it's worth noting that this problem really is based on, Wayne, and I think you agree, that if you assume – if your first premise of the universe or of biological life – is a long, slow, gradual development from real small to what we see today. Because what the universe started in a hot, dense state called a singularity. And then from all that hot, dense state, I think George Lemaitre back in the early 19, early 20th century, uh, a primeval atom, a cosmic egg, if you will, um, kaboom or expand or whatever it did. And then it created this, this hot, gaseous soup. Uh, from which atoms and protons, neutrons, and all that stuff form. Same thing kind of in a, in, a, in abiogenesis. Well, where'd life come from? Well, this tiny little RNA, DNA thing in a hot primordial soup somewhere in the you know early, early Earth, a little sunlight, a little admixture of some chemicals, and bang, you have this uh, super entity, whatever it is that has created all life. But if you assume from the outset, as Darwin did and as our modern cosmological models do, if you assume from the outset, you don't question it, a long, slow, gradual process over time, the, these questions that James Webb has brought to the forefront of our minds uh, are going to become more and more difficult to try to explain things in terms of a long, slow, gradual process. I think uh, the bigger our telescopes get, uh, they're supposed to be building one called the Carl Sagan which is going to be at least, I think, double the size of James Webb. I don't know when that's coming out, but my guess will be whenever that comes out that we will be having the same kind of conversation. <laughs> They're going to find massive galaxies yes. further and further away at the beginning of the universe because um, I think uh, the, the the idea that uh, the Bible is uh, – what the Bible says is that on day four, as you know, Wayne, God created the lights in the sky and he created the stars also for signs and for seasons, for days and for years. And uh, the more they look, 
the more they're going to find things that look like they just come into being fully formed and fully mature. I think that's the issue. I think that's it. Yes. So that's, uh, that's what I keep thinking when I hear about these new things from James mm-hmm. Webb is that it seems like it was all there from the start. And, right. and the idea of a dark period, they think there was a dark period after matter cools down and before there was stars, mm-hmm. there was no light, mm-hmm. so it was dark. And that mm-hmm. was uh, hundreds of millions of years. And the, yeah, and then, so what if there was no dark period? Right. That's actually That's actually more in line with what the Bible says. Right. I think it is. Um, the other thing, too, Wayne, is uh, the, the idea of an expanding universe. And this began with Edwin Hubble in 1929. He finds a Cepheid variable in Andromeda and uh, does some calculations and measurements. And lo and behold, the universe is expanding because Hubble measured redshifts. So a redshift is basically the further away a galaxy is, the longer its wavelength of light, and thus light is shifted to the red end of the spectrum because things are further away. And his hypothesis was that the further away a galaxy was, the faster it was moving away from us to the extent that the most distant galaxies are moving away from us at speeds that exceed the speed of light. Now, how can anything in the universe exceed the speed of light? Well, the solution has been to introduce this thing called dark energy, which doesn't throw the frisbees of galaxies. The galaxies aren't moving. They're moving on this thing called space-time fabric, which is being stretched or pushed or uh, accelerated by dark energy, which is like 68 to 70% of what the universe is allegedly made of. And they're using this invisible entity of dark energy for which they don't have any particles, to explain why things in the far distant universe are moving faster than the speed of light away from us. Um, yeah. But that that's another hypothesis that brings up the problem that they were addressing in the 1980s, 1970s and 1980s, and I still think it's a problem, is how does mass, Wayne, form and clump together to get black holes, to get stars, to get galaxies, when the whole fabric of space of space-time is being stretched at speeds exceeding the speed of light. How does mass, gas especially, how does any of this stuff that's within the space-time fabric actually coalesce into these massive entities when the universe itself is stretching out in all different directions at, at speeds exceeding the speed of light? How does that happen? Right. Well, this this is their problem, and uh, they've worked on this a lot, and they have theories about it, but uh, I've never found it convincing at all um so the big bang does the expansion but they have to rely mainly on gravity and what we know about gases in space and the mm-hmm. temperature effects right right the temperature and the gravity is what's going to determine what a gas cloud does in space right and um so what, you only have so many tools to work with if gas is in space mm-hmm. <laughs> to form to form something. I've never found it convincing. Um, but what I'd like to think about is when they're presented with the problem of these galaxies and and the big uh, big black holes way out there. Uh, how are they going to respond to this? Uh, so one response might be to uh, argue that there's measurement problems they've run into the with these distant objects and they need to make some corrections somehow. So that would be the approach that says let's defend the accepted ideas and we need to make corrections in these special situations. Uh, to kind of, to hold on to the 13.7 or 13.8 billion years age, that might be one reaction. And then another reaction is by this guy named Gupta. Now Gupta has proposed an interesting thing, and what he's doing is he's bringing in an old idea that came from the I think it was 1929 or something from somebody and. 
it's, it's been referred to as tired light. And tired light um, says that when, when light is traveling across the universe, it loses energy and it gets red-shifted by its interaction with matter in uh, certain ways. But he's also interjecting uh, changes in fundamental constants in with the uh, with this process. So in his approach, okay, we know about redshift that when stars moving away are moving away from us, there there's a redshift from their motion, and then what they will say was what they they will also scientists will also talk about what they call the cosmological redshift. What's that? A cosmological redshift is from this initial expansion of the universe. It's not about motion of objects within space. It's about space itself expanding. Right, right. That's what we were talking it's about. Like, like if you imagine a a stretchable material. If you stretch the material, objects tied to that material start to move, right? If it, mm-hmm. it, well, that's like uh, the expansion of the universe and the Big Bang. The objects right along with it. So it's like uh, maybe we can think of it as a um, – I know no analogy is perfect, but a surfer on a surfboard. The wave is really what's moving the surfer, the wave, the speed of the wave. and that uh, might- Yeah, it's a little like that. Um, yeah, something like and, that. And uh, I'd like to give a little physics lesson here, Dan, because uh, go right ahead, int- Mister Spencer. That's what int- you're here for. <laughs> I, I used to be a physics teacher, so I'm gonna I'm gonna put on my. You're the science guy. Hat. I'm just color let, commentary. Let, let's imagine <laughs> a simple analogy. I, I like to turn things into a simple analogy if you can. That's good. You know? let's so let's it. imagine on a table, you have two balls. Two heavy balls that are connected by a spring. And the balls are set up so that they can roll on the table with with almost no friction. And you're you're going to take these balls and they're they're going to move outward from each other. So the string is going to stretch. There's different things that can happen when you if you if something starts the ball stretching, moving out, it stretches the spring, and the, what happens next depends on how strong the spring is. If the spring is weak and the balls are moved out very rapidly, it might just break the spring and it flies apart. If the spring is strong enough, the balls will go out for some distance and then they will pull back. And uh, now, let me throw a third scenario at that. Okay. What if, the, what if the, uh, the balls that you're rolling are super massive, and they, they their velocities are such to where even if the str- even if this may be your first example, but if the balls are super massive, then they could snap the string or the spring, but that would fit the, the strength of the spring. I well, that's a good actually a good that's a good next example. So one case is uh, the 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 closed example where they come back, and the other mm-hmm. is the open where they go out and they break the spring and they just keep going. Mm-hmm. The, then the other example is what if it's just balance in the middle, and that would be like let's say the friction is just enough and, the, and they're moving their mass and their uh, their energy is enough. They go out some distance and they sort of stretch the spring as much as possible, and then it just stops. Mm. <laughs> so this used to be this used to be the question that they had about the universe: Will the universe uh, keep expanding forever, and then all the energy just kind of dissipates? Um, will it? Will it? Um, go out at, at some distance and stop mm-hmm. when it balances or will it come back in? Is it possible for the expansion to turn around and it start to contract again? Mm. Yeah, this some people is, call that the big crunch. Yes, 
Yeah. And, and there are – the Big Bang theory is not really one theory. It's actually – Multiple theories. Multiple – there's multiple models or uh, approaches to the Big Bang. So one of those, for example, there's a, a physicist by the name of – I think his name is Brian Cox. Um Yeah. Brian Cox, he's been promoting the idea for some years that um, the universe could stop and contract. And there are some scientists who think the universe could do this and you'd end up with um, a a cyclic universe where you have another Big Bang. It, it, It stops expansion, contracts down, and then it expands in another Big Bang. Mm-hmm. Roger Penrose has something like that. He calls it a cyclical yeah. conformity cosmology where it's bangs and crunches and bangs and crunches. It's like a right. you know, basketball so, so, on a basketball court. You start you, you you start dribbling it and you let it go. It hits the floor, goes back up, hits the floor, goes back up. Eventually it just comes to a standstill. And uh, the problem with Penrose's, um, his critics, I think, of his model would suggest that the entropy would eventually run out there's not enough um energy to uh, keep banging and contracting and banging and contracting yeah even that can't be forever right um, exactly but, but uh the thing that's interesting to me is to watch what the scientists do and this is uh, so gupta takes the view of well let's let's make the universe a little older so we have a little more time for these distant galaxies and and mm-hmm. black holes to form uh, then some might take the view, no, let's not change, let's not rock the boat, let's hold on to our accepted ideas and let's just make some corrections and mm-hmm. explain the observations better and all this. Right. And, then, and then others might be saying, like Penrose or Cox, um, okay, this means that the, the, uni- the Big Bang was not the beginning. And they, it, it stopped and it started contracting and the big, what we call the beginning of our universe was actually not the beginning of time because there is another cycle before that. Right. And so That's what they're saying. The, yeah. the universe contracted and then there was the Big Bang that we, we know of. Good Heavens is recorded and produced by Watchman Fellowship Incorporated. For more information about our podcast and ministry, including having our staff speak at your church, visit watchman.org. That's watchman.org for more information and resources on apologetics, world religions, cults, and our sister podcast, Apologetics Profile. Visit watchman.org for Watchman Fellowship. I'm Anna-Marie Smuts.